Good morning, everyone. I'm Joseph Cotto, and I'm very pleased to have joining me today, Eric Kaufman. You may have heard of him, and if you haven't, that's a shame, but you're definitely going to hear from him now. Uh, he's a professor of politics at the University of Buckingham, which, uh, as you might imagine, is in England. But before that, he was at the University of London, and why he switched institutions, we will get to. A uh, very interesting book he's recently written called White Shift. Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. That and quite a few other things uh, are up for discussion today. Uh, but before any of that, Eric, how's it going? Thank you for being here. Going well, Joseph, and thanks for having me. I should say I've been in England for over 25 years, but I am Canadian, so I'm sorry to disappoint people who are expecting a plummy Oxford accent. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the the accent. I, I I put it somewhere in southern Ontario. Is that correct? Well, the thing is, is in, in Canada, you know, there isn't much difference between southern Ontario and and where I'm from in Vancouver. You can drive oh, for wow. a week, and it sounds pretty similar. So, it's <laughs> it's probably either one. Now, I bring that up because in Florida, where I am, uh, it, there are more Ontario plates that you see day to day than you see plates from most states. As a matter of fact, it's Ontario. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. And I've grown up around people from Ontario and they sound almost identical to you. So that's why I brought that up. And most of them from Southern, the Toronto area. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so it, no, it, obviously the situation in Canada is fascinating. Same thing with the US, but we're going to be talking about your situation that you have dealt with over in the United Kingdom. And nowadays, with political currents being what they are, there's not a tremendous degree of difference between what's going on in any of these places. Uh, it's uh, there, there are certainly very broad Anglospheric. Uh, things happening that's i think about as broadly as i can get into them before we get into something stuff that's more specific but anyhow uh talking about your book white shift which i think is probably the first the best thing to get into first uh i did mention it's a subtitle populism immigration and the future of white majorities uh needless to say uh not everyone in academia was happy about this book uh but i'm very glad that you wrote it uh what is the book about why is it timely and why uh were some people none too pleased by it well yeah i think it's really it came out it was published in 2018 but it was sort of conceived just just past the time when we had brexit in the uk the rise of trump in the us and the success of a number of uh populist right parties like the front national in france the danish people's party in in denmark hitting about 30 percent of the uh, European election vote in 2014. So you had this thing, well, basically this event, the populist moment from 2014 through to about 2017. And I was just, the first part of the book is just to say, the way we explain this is really around immigration and ethnocultural shifting, that that is really at the heart of this. And I sort of go through detailed survey data where you, when you crunch the numbers, it's pretty clear that whether you're rich or poor, unemployed or in a good job making a lot of money that doesn't make it makes almost no difference uh, to whether you're likely to vote for brexit or trump or any of these populist right movements so that was the first thing to say is that this is really behind this all it's it's cultural and, and it's 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 about shifting demographics the second thing is to to sort of look ahead and to say well um, how do we see this playing out? And, and one of the ways we're seeing it play out is populism and polarization. So certain people like 
change, uh, like cultural change, see it as interesting. Others see it as loss. See, uh, some people like the the present to be more like the past. Some people see differences disorderly, and and so you're getting a splitting of the electorate. Uh, along these dispositional lines. And that's giving us our polarization now. And it's all about the reaction and response to this demographic change. Obviously, demographic change is uh, not just limited to Europe. It's going on massively in Canada and in the United States. Uh, it's something really taking place across the Western world. Now, uh, not to get off, well, it really isn't off track at all, but there has has been a massive uh, shock to the system in Holland, where uh, Gert Wilder's party, the Party for Freedom, uh, scored better than anyone, including he thought possible at the last election, and there's a real chance he will become a prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, so this, what happened in uh, Holland has a lot to do with fears about the consequences of immigration, especially looking at who has immigrated there. I think that people misunderstand this as a racial matter. Uh, it has, a, I, I've been following it for a, quite a while. It has so much more to do with culture and religion. Uh, and most certainly what took place in Israel uh, regarding the Hamas attack, I think that no doubt uh, bolstered the fortunes of Wilder's party. Uh, and when a lot of people who want to see these immigration changes continue, start speaking about the reaction to them. They often say, you know, racist, this, that, the other thing, blah, blah, blah. Even though in the United States, interestingly, people who come from the Middle East and Northern Africa are considered white under federal law, which is definitely not how it works in other countries, it's how it works here. But whether it's here or in Canada or in Europe, if anybody doesn't like these immigration trends, they're called, you know, ists and isms and this and that. But if you look at what people are actually afraid of, it does have a lot more to do with immigration and culture. Uh, and uh, obviously, uh, people who want to see the culture change tend to support very high rates of immigration. Uh, and these people are most often white themselves, but they more or less hate their heritage. Uh, so it's a fascinating, really fascinating series of turns of events. Well, yeah. So you you put your finger on a number of things there. I mean, the first is this the the quite unprecedented levels of support for populists in Europe. Now, I mean, you mentioned Wilders coming out tops in the Netherlands, but that that was on about a 20, 25, 23, 25 percent of the popular vote. But in a system where you've got lots and lots and lots of parties. Um, in France now, I mean, there's talk of uh, Marine Le Pen. Uh, becoming president next election in a runoff system where she's going to get 50, over 50% of the vote in a two-person run, runoff. That's almost already happened in Austria. So, mm -hmm. I mean, these numbers, just to give you a sense of the scale, in 2000, 2001, that kind of period, the uh, York Heider, the Austrian Freedom Party leader, got 27% of the vote and Austria was sanctioned by the European Union. In France, Jean-Marie Le Pen, uh, Marine Le Pen's father got 18%. That brought a million people out on the streets in protest. 18% versus, she's now polling in the 40s. Mm -hmm. uh, in Austria, that 27% is now close to 50. It was 48% in the last, uh, the last time it was contested, I believe. Mm -hmm. So we've had like a doubling or more of support, and now there's just no response from the other side. It's just normal. Uh, and that gives you a sense of just how much higher the, the, the ratchet has gone. Um, 
Now, I think there, you mentioned about religion. So yes, in, in Europe, about half of the foreign-born population or thereabouts is, is Muslim. And you could see, certainly with the Palestinian, some of these protests where you had the pro-Palestinian side out on the streets. London, you had hundreds of thousands. Now, that was a mix of white leftists and Palestinian or, or largely Arab, ethnic Arab uh, protesters, some other Muslim groups, South Asian Muslim groups. But that, I think, yes, brings it viscerally home that, hey, this, this is a changed country. Uh, the, the scale of these protests is really something else. And yeah, I think that sort of awakens a more visceral sense that your country isn't what you thought it was. Uh, but I think, broadly speaking, there is also the other more background change around the decline of majority groups, which I think is not strictly related to fears about any one group such as Muslims, but it's just about a sense of loss of the country mm -hmm. that one knew growing up and so forth. You know, it's interesting because here in, in Florida, uh, I am a native, which is pretty rare, uh, but I've seen the culture of the area shift dramatically over the last two decades. It used to be that it was totally dominated by uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestants and Scots-Irish who settled the area in the 1880s. Uh, and they more or less recreated a British society here. I mean, about 9.5 out of 10 people, uh, if those numbers could work, uh, are of, were of British background. And they had a system of government, uh, a system of business, uh, a system of uh, a social order, which was pretty resilient. But then the population swelled with people not only from across the country, but across the world. And I've seen the culture of what it used to be, what the culture it used to be now is essentially a remnant. Uh, and there is no one thing that has replaced it. It's many different things that are in the process of replacing it. And this is not necessarily a racial shift, even though obviously a shift in racial demographics is part of it. Uh, it it's a lot of it's an ethnic shift, different whites moving in who have no relation to, you know, uh, literally the founding stock. And uh, I wound up growing, I did grow up around some of the people who descend from the uh, the founders. And it's not that long ago, like I said, the 1880s. And uh, no, none of us ever had any inkling that there would be this kind of change, but it did come in the 2000s. And again, in the 2010s, since COVID, uh, Florida has had a, a wave after wave of uh, people coming here to live for various reasons. Uh, and the fact of the matter is, is that and a place can change drastically culturally uh, in a way that few people would encompass, maybe no one would encompass. And this can happen within two decades time. And when stuff like that happens, people are going to wonder what on earth is going on. And uh, locally, the politics actually have become more Republican, uh, <laughs> which is uh, something else. But uh, that's not the case everywhere. Uh, as one sees in Europe where they've had massive immigration. We'll just look at the United Kingdom because uh, you know, the whole continent would just be too long to get into here. But the United Kingdom has experienced massive immigration since uh, Tony Blair's government came to power in 97. And of course, it was revealed several years later that his government intentionally brought in as many people as possible because they wanted to rub the Tories' face in diversity. It was a form of generating power for the Labour Party, but also just raising the finger to the Tories who had been in power for, uh, at that point, you're talking about uh, from, from 1979 to 1996, 
17 years. So the fact, you know, looking at all this, uh, immigration can be used and is used to promote political and cultural change. Uh, not everybody benefits from that. And when the change is rapid, people get disoriented and different populations will react to that in different ways. Exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's the difference in reaction. You know, one group of people will say, um, this is wonderful. And, and then another pe group of people will say, well, I'm, I've, I've lost my identity or what I thought was was what the sense of the familiar and way of life and everything. And then the one side who are the more sort of people who like the change will point the finger or at least some of them will point the finger and say, oh, no, you're a bunch of racists. You're closed minded. You're bigots. Um, and that sets up the dynamic of, of some of what we're calling the culture wars. Right. So it's about the imposition of a set of moral uh, prescriptions and language policing around what you are and aren't allowed to say, which is related to this idea of being hypersensitive to uh, minority groups, immigrant groups, and not wanting to offend them, therefore not being allowed to have a debate over immigration. And I think that's kind of the situation we're in. I mentioned in the book that when you shut down the debate over a particular topic that people are people care about, what you do is you open up room for uh, the populist right. And so what I mean by that is if you have people in the Soviet Union wanting blue jeans and other kinds of clothing and the, the, the State Department store says, no, we're selling black pants and that's it, then the black market's going to pop up to supply what the state official department store isn't going to supply. And similarly in politics, if the mainstream parties are not going to talk about reducing numbers, then the political black marketeers, that's the Wilderses and the AFD in Germany and other people are going to pop up to supply that. And that's what we're seeing. It's, it's the failure of the established elites there uh, because they are essentially scared of these taboos that have been generated by the progressive left for the most part, um, which restrict what a democracy is allowed to discuss and debate politically. My view is that these things need to be debated. And also, I should say that the you know, if you're concerned about ethnocultural change, I think that's quite distinct from racism. And I'll just make this point because a lot of people don't understand this argument. Um, there's in psychology research, a very big difference between attachment to and hatred of the outsider. So if you're attached to your own group versus disliking the out group, those are generally dis different dispositions. If I'm really attached to my family, that doesn't mean I'm going to dislike the family next door more. Uh, if, if a Chinese American wants to move to a Chinese neighborhood, it's not because they hate white Americans for the most part. It's just that they are more attached to their own group. And similarly, I think if we talk about Europe, the US, Canada, there are there's a significant number of people who want to who are attached to their own group or they're attached to the country they knew, which includes, amongst other things, ethnocultural composition and mix. They want that. To, they don't want that to change very much. And that's one of the main reasons why they don't want to have rapid immigration. That's an attachment, too. And it's not a fear or hatred of the outsiders. There's already plenty of outsiders that people are interacting with. And I think that's a trick that's often used that people, whenever they want to talk about conserving or slowing down so that, that the world they know doesn't change as rapidly, they were accused of hating fearing being feeling superior to outsiders in other words being racist that's one of the most dishonest uh ways of shutting down debate but it's been used time and time again so i don't think we should fall for that i think it's perfectly legitimate to say we want it slower including cultural change slower it's it's not about 
this binary, you're either open or you're closed. You're either a bigot uh, or you're open. No, actually, there are people who want it slower or faster. And we ought, we should, in a normal adult society, be able to come to an accommodation instead of having uh, all of these red lines and no-go areas. Absolutely. And I'll just correct something I said before. Uh, the Tories were in power from 1979 to 1997, 18 years. Uh, I think it said 17. Uh, but anyway, uh, but everything you just said, I agree with wholeheartedly. Uh, it's uh, really amazing how the debate over cultural change goes because it tends to go in one direction so far as the media and academia are concerned and then people who don't like that obviously are demonized and that's getting into what happened to you. So now white shift uh, was not terribly well liked by many in academia, no surprise there. Explain the reaction from many in uh, Britain's uh, so-called intelligentsia. <laughs> well, you know, the interesting thing is that the book itself wasn't actually received too badly um, across the political spectrum in a way. In, I, I shouldn't say across, but certainly like, you know, I was on Ezra Klein. I got reviewed in, you know, the time, Times and in the, the Los Angeles Times and various places generally favorably. So it wasn't that, that the book itself was the problem, uh, even though some of the arguments definitely rubbed people the wrong way. But I'd say it was more about social media and media writing because most of these people don't read they, the only way they become aware of things is on social media so you know anytime you kind of oppose movements that are supposedly in the name of protecting minorities so if a movement says blm on the cover if it says anti-fascism on the cover then if you oppose that you are a, a racist or a fascist right and, and this is the kind of thing that starts to happen. Or, I mean, I retweeted, for example, uh, Justin Trudeau, uh, Canada's uh, awful prime minister, who was doing a, uh, you know, he was trying to say LGBTQ and he couldn't do it. He was just mangling those words over and over. And uh, so I just retweeted that and just say, saying, you know, look at Mr. Woke trying to pronounce these words. Isn't this sort of ironic? Um, and that sort of was, that's the kind of thing that would, would get me in hot water. Um, and so a lot of this is really just around opposing the critical social justice or broader kind of identity politics movement. That's what really led the radical student activists and academics to kind of link together and to try and sort of through internal investigations, uh, Twitter mobbings, open letters, just to try and sort of drive me out of the university. Mm -hmm. And you did uh, switch from uh, Birkbeck College, which is a constituent of the University of London, uh, it, it, to the University of Buckingham. Uh, how did that come about? Well, really, I've been sort of under fire from about 2018. I'd had sort of multiple internal investigations and I was having to get legal um, I had these Twitter mobbings going on. I had, you know, just a lot of tension with certain colleagues. Not, not so much in my own department. I'd known those people a long time, but it was everything was just getting very awkward. So I didn't have to go. It wasn't that, you know, I was driven out. It, it was more the case that it was becoming unpleasant, and that was a factor. That on its own, I mean, I could deal with. I could stay, you know, just come in do my teaching. But then there were this, you know, they can go after your research ethics by claiming that your research is insensitive and therefore we're going to hold it up. And my great fear was that they were going to start blocking mm -hmm. all of my research at the ethics committee. And so that, that was, again, just another factor that played in me thinking I've got to get out. And of course in Britain, 
there are essentially no non-leftist universities. The closest thing we have is the University of Buckingham, which was founded really by Margaret Thatcher and by uh, that kind of classical liberal economics wave of the 70s and 80s as a private university. And it's it's been under leadership that's broadly been right of center. And so it's the only place really in the UK where I felt that I could sort of build a kind of research and teaching uh, community that would be a bit freer. And so I've kind of uh, had been in discussions with them and I just thought the time was right to really say, and this is, you know, I had a tenured professorship. I've been a professor since 2011. 2011, it's a very secure job, which is makes it very hard to give up. But I said, you know, I just got to, if I'm ever going to do this, now's the time to do it. Um, and so what I'm going to be setting up, or what I am setting up at uh, Buckingham is I've got a new course on woke Again, the kind of thing you couldn't do at a regular university. It's a 15-week online course, incidentally open to your listeners and anybody else uh, in the world starting in January. So that's kind of one initiative. Another is just this new center I'm launching in, in February, um, which is going to just be doing social science research that's been neglected because it's politically uh, unpalatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. Oh, please go ahead. Yeah, no. So the whole point of this research center is to say, you know, academia has essentially skewed the entire pursuit of truth away from certain questions and has decreed certain orthodoxies, which are the only way you're allowed to talk about, for example, race and gender gaps in pay. The only acceptable answer to that question is systemic discrimination. (laughs) You can't talk about... uh, culture. You can't talk about differences between the sexes, for example, that's out of bounds. That's just one example of where um, we need research that's actually going to be much more honest. Now, it could be the establishment narrative is right, but equally it could be that it's wrong. We need to be able to ask those questions. So there's a huge range of questions that simply haven't been asked. Uh, The whole truth-seeking enterprise in academia has been distorted by ideology, and it's getting worse and worse and worse because academia's the, the composition of academia has been skewing more and more to the left. So it's now the case, for example, in top uh, U.S. universities, the social sciences and, his, and humanities faculties are about 15 to 1, something of that order, left to right. Uh, Harvard, just to give you an example, because it's in the spotlight right now, Harvard's donate political donations over the last few years have been around 98%. Uh, Democrat and one percent Republican. Then those are that's not a survey. That is actually hard data on donations by Harvard's uh, academics. It's about ninety-eight percent to the Democrats. So mm-hmm. that gives you a sense just of the climate that exists in these institutions. There's just no way you can have uh, an honest and open, fair assessment of a of a problem when you have that much of a political monoculture. Absolutely. You know, uh, two things come to mind. Number one, Alan Dershowitz, uh, who's a professor emeritus, I believe, at this point uh, at Harvard, he is treated as a pariah, even though he is a liberal Democrat, uh, but a, a liberal Democrat who is of uh, the old school. But you know, the old school is not terribly old. You're talking about someone who was a mainstream Democrat until more or less a uh, few years ago. Uh, and even he is treated as a pariah by people at Harvard. So that goes to show how left wing Harvard has 
become, and it's only growing more so. And uh, here in Florida, there is something called uh, the New College, which is down in Sarasota. And it was a very unprofitable state-owned school uh, for people who are of, of an artistic persuasion generally. Uh, it, it was sort of like a, a quasi-tropical version of Berkeley. Uh, and the state recently came in uh, with a battering ram. Uh, a lot of people left and they've reordered it to become something like the University of Buckingham. Uh, so it, it's fascinating when there is uh, some sort of non-lefty uh, public sector direction to create a new uh a, a new post-secondary institution. It happened with Buckingham and it's happening here with new college down in Sarasota. So uh, these things, you know, they are a drop in the bucket because in the U.S., as within the U.K., it's overwhelmingly left-wing <laughs> academia uh, with overwhelmingly being in caps lock. But sometimes there are changes. Uh, one wonders how uh, successful the changes are in the grand scheme. But, you know, a drop in the bucket is better than nothing at all. Well, yeah, and I think Chris Rufo, who I, you know, have corresponded with on a number of occasions, has done a great job, I think, mm -hmm. in sort of starting these some of these debates. Mm -hmm. And also Ron DeSantis, the uh, governor of Florida, yes. uh, I think has done a, a great job in many ways as well, because there's really two ways you, you have to go at this. I mean, essentially what you've had is a capture and corruption of higher education and increasing, increasingly, by the way, K-12 schools as well. Uh, by ideolo ideology and ideologues. And so how do you begin to reform that that elephant, right? So one way is to set up alternative institutions and give people school choice. I actually think that's less important and probably not the long-run solution. The other is, is to reform public sector institutions, do what has been done to at New College, for example. Uh, and that, I think, is is going to be extremely important to be able to sort of more or less say that you can't indoctrinate um, pupils, that if you engage in indoctrination, you're going to be fired from your job. You actually have to get to a position now where institutions, unfortunately, and we, we don't want to have to be in this position, but because they have become corrupted, they need to be in many ways in, in, intrusively reformed by the state. And so that means, for example, saying that um, you're not going to engage in political indoctrination. If you engage in political indoctrination, then you're going to be penalized. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's at that level. And, and some people say, well, we can't have government. Well, government is elected in a way. It's the only institution that the citizenry can hope to control. They can't have any say in a university. That's behind closed doors. There's no scrutiny, no transparency. And so they can do whatever they want. Um, and so I really think the need to... And again, some of the bills around divisive concepts, for example, in schools, that's important. Um, I, you know, in Britain, we, we've now got some legislation. We've had a couple, couple of bits of legislation, one of which is called the Academic Freedom Bill, sets up a, an academic freedom directorate of 10 people, um, which can monitor and fine universities for violating academic freedom of, of students. Um, it, it offers students a way to, and staff, a way to appeal around their universities for redress and also a right to take their universities to court for violating their academic freedom. All of those things are, 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 are incredibly important if we're going to reform these institutions because they're very comfortable 
discriminating against anyone who doesn't share their views in hiring. You need to actually get in there and interfere with all of those processes, including political discrimination in hiring, including universities taking positions on issues like Israel-Palestine, Black Lives Matter, etc. They have no business actually taking these positions. They do take these positions and overtly politicize universities. Um, so we actually are going to need to, yes, have new institutions, but also, I think more importantly, get in there and really regulate what universities are allowed to, to do. Um, and they should not be allowed to indoctrinate the way uh, they are indoctrinating. Uh, before we move on to uh, something else, there you mentioned the school choice option and you don't think it's the answer. Obviously, a lot of people on the right in the U.S. Uh, are very big fans of school choice. Uh, why is it that you think this, and just for those who don't know, school choice is basically a voucher system wherein the state gives people money to send their kids to a, a school of their choosing. Uh, it's handled differently in different places. There's no one form of school choice, but that's it in a very crude nut shell. Uh, so uh, what's your stance? I mean, you, you did share your stance of school choice, but any additional words about that? Well, yeah. So so it's not that I'm against school choice. I, I think it's a great idea. In a way. I just don't think it's going to solve the problem of large-scale indoctrination of school children in mm -hmm. radical race and gender ideology, uh, as well as a very negative portrayal of, of national history. Zach Goldberg and I at Manhattan Institute did a um, a large survey of 18 to 20 year olds in the U.S. I've done one in Britain as well. Mm -hmm. In the U.S., about we found about 93% of uh, American 18 to 20 year olds had heard at least one of six critical race and gender theory concepts in school from an adult. So this is saturated the system. We also found that the schools that were pushing this stuff more heavily uh, we in those schools, the school children were much more democratic. They were much more in favor of affirmative action, much more in favor of white guilt than students where these concepts were not being pushed. But more importantly, I mean, in terms of the policy side, it didn't matter whether people went to public or private schools, uh, parochial schools, and even homeschool. Mm -hmm. um, the level of critical race and gender theory content was over 75% in all of those types of school. Um, and so what I think with school choice is parents are gonna offer schools they think are gonna get them ahead. They aren't going to be attuned to the content of the lessons. And so at best, it will allow a very small number of very highly attuned and informed parents to avoid woke schools. But for the most part, most people are not going to avoid those schools. And so the whole system will continue to indoctrinate at a very high level. And it's really the indoctrination of the next generation that's my concern. And that's why I think you gotta get at the bulk of the system as quickly as possible. And I don't think, because the, when you say you know school choice, a lot of conservatives will say, oh, we got school choice. Oh, great, problem solved. Well, that's, that's the problem in a way. It's not gonna solve, it's not gonna solve this indoctrination problem, which by the way, is producing a generation, you know, half of whom think Hamas you know, are, are on the pro-Hamas side as opposed to the pro-Israel side. Mm. Um, Two thirds of whom think James Damore should have was that Google was right to fire. You know, the programmer mm. James Damore for just simply raising scientifically based questions about uh, the firm's gender equity policy. And that's just a couple of examples, or, or over eighty percent, who think that um, people who come to campus who want to sort of be negative about BLM should be allowed to speak on campus. They, they believe they should be kept off campus. So you have a lot of these very sort of 
illiberal progressive attitudes that are metastasizing in that young population. They're getting it through the school system among, as well as social media, but really I think we've got to get at that indoctrination machine. And the only real way to do that is to reform public education. It definitely has to be reformed. And there are some serious efforts now, such as in Florida and elsewhere, to do that. Although, uh, <laughs> obviously, it's a multi-tier system because there's a state and then there's the county. And what can and does happen is that the state will issue certain guidelines. But a very good examples here in Florida. Uh, Tallahassee is the capital. It's in Leon County. Leon County is very democratic. So the state can issue uh, the Republican run uh, <laughs> state Department of education at the governor's behest and at the legislature's behest can issue certain guidelines. They then have to be implemented by the Democrats who run the school board in Leon County. You can obviously imagine that these people in Leon County are not going to uh, be very keen on doing what the state tells them to do. So there's always the question of how this stuff is handled at different levels. And obviously there's no one one way of dealing with this, but it, it is to be uh, noted because, you know, in some countries it's very just top down. There is a ministry of education and whatever it says goes. But as is the case in the UK and the US, you have school boards or local education authorities, as they're called in the UK. And, uh, you, you know, they do their own thing, even though there are guidelines. But the people who are at these boards or authorities tend not to care very much about what they're told to do, particularly if they're told by a conservative government. Uh, they often relish in raising the middle finger. And uh, there could be some real issues as a result of that in terms of uh, what actually comes of the public policy changes that were driven by uh, people who are right of center. Yeah, that's those are some really good points of Joseph and a lot will depend on the constitutions of the states mm -hmm. uh, as to who has the ultimate authority. It may go it may have to go to court to, to, to iron out these things. I mean, I'd say in Britain, it's very centralized where the government controls the purse strings. And I think they are able to they could affect change. They haven't been very effective. Um, but I think if they were if they really got the bit between the teeth, I think they could really make some changes. And actually, by also using press leaks, um, put a lot of pressure on those who would buck the system. But my, I don't know enough about the Florida Constitution. So, so Canada's a little bit like, to some degree, like the U.S., where you have school boards and they matter. Mm -hmm. uh, in Britain, my sense is that doesn't exist. You have local authorities, but they get all their funding from the government, and I think they will. They basically have to comply with the central government. Um, I th my sense in Florida, however, is there has been a certain degree to which DeSantis's divisive concepts bills have chilled mm -hmm. the the teaching profession and, and have prevented them from perhaps engaging in as much critical race theory and gender ideology uh, indoctrination as they might like to. Um, and I, I don't know what your perception is. Maybe that's only happening in the red districts and not at, in the blue districts. Well, there is uh, a lot of controversy. The state has been generally effective, but, you know, a lot of stuff goes on at the local level behind closed doors, uh, especially when it shouldn't. Uh, but th it, they've been generally effective, although, you know, there's there's obviously a limit because of what people will do at the local level and does wind up uh, if it goes far enough that these people don't comply with the state after they're warned, obviously it can go to court. Uh, and uh, that's uh, that's always a very contentious, complicated issue.
But Florida does have one of the most activist uh, public school unions in the country, uh, down, down in Dade County, which is where Miami is. I'm sure you knew that, but some people might not. And uh, that they have been kept on a leash for sure by reforms from Tallahassee. So there is, you know, a good deal of effectiveness, but it's really county to county. And, you know, uh, basically the people who run things at a local level, if they're part of a lefty uh, county bureaucracy, uh, they will do what they're supposed to do for as long as the magnifying glass is on them. The second it goes away, uh, they're going to go back to business as usual. So, you know, just because things are going well is no guarantee of how things will go. In Florida, though, most school boards are Republican because most counties vote Republican. Uh, and uh, it, so it's generally not an issue across the state, but there are obviously some problem children in a manner of speaking. Uh, now, talking about uh, an article, much before I get to the article that you wrote, talking about the course that you, you uh, mentioned that you're teaching, it is online, it's titled Woke, the Origins, Dynamics, and Implications of an Elite Ideology. I think this is, a, I mean, a, a great title because wokeness really is an elite ideology. It's on the left, but it's not the sort of traditional labor left where people uh, would come up with ideas that were a result of them feeling that they were being exploited for their work. Uh, this is definitely not bottom up uh elite is is that that's the best way of describing it by far uh so i i suppose if you wouldn't mind talking about the elite aspect the elitist i should say aspect of wokeism i think that would very well set up uh, what we're about to get into well yeah so so this comes out of really academia and um the intellectual left not the kind of union working class mm -hmm left that you mentioned. Uh, and so what happens is that the intellectual left largely takes over the leadership in the unions and left-wing parties like Britain's Labour Party, which has changed considerably, mm -hmm. as the Democrats have in the US as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is, it comes out of a cultural elite. If you trace back the origins of these ideas, there are strands of um, expressive individualist modernism, so this bohemian uh, artists, that's one strand. Another strand is uh, a sort of egalitarianism, except it's instead of class, it's about identity groups. So women, African-Americans, for example, that if there's any race gaps or gender gaps in, in pay, that's intolerable instead of gaps between, um, you know, the proletariat, you know, the working class and the capitalists. That's no longer the concern, but it's the gap between these different identity groups. So identity-based equality, that's a cornerstone of this belief system, which is why I sometimes call it cultural socialism. Mm -hmm. It's a cultural form of socialism. The other aspect, however, is this idea of hypersensitivity and psychological harm protection. Um, so you are going to protect the very fragile minority groups from any words that might hurt their self-esteem. That is sort of where we've got to. So it's a combination of any inequality of outcome being intolerable between identity groups and the majority and any kind of psychological or so-called emotional trauma uh, being intolerable. So a so-called microaggression saying anyone can make it in America, that is, that becomes a racist thing to say because that's denying so-called systemic discrimination. Um, and so the core then of woke, as I define it in one sentence, just so people are clear, 
the one sentence definition is the making sacred of historically disadvantaged race, gender, and sexual identity groups. The making sacred of these groups, these three categories, not other categories, not whether you are intelligent or not, whether you are athletic or not, whether you are attractive or not. No, it's all about, or, or class, this is all about race, gender, sexuality. And therefore, once you accept that these are sacred totems, anything you say that offends one of these sacred totems in any, any, any conceivable way, no matter how small, means that there are grounds for your excommunication for having committed blasphemy against one of these three gods. And that is really the, that is why we see, for example, these, this sort of disgust reaction. You, you gotta be expunged, you gotta be canceled, driven off the campus because you have defiled the sacred. It's all sort of a secular religion in a way. So that's really at the core of what this concept is. And then of course, in the course, I mean, I can talk about the 15 weeks and what we what we get into. I mean, there are so many different facets of this. It's really so important for what's happening in culture and politics. And there is nobody studying it basically in universities other than to condemn the people who bring it up. Obviously, the condemnation uh, carries <laughs> a special resonance with people who engage in it. Uh, and even though they would say that they are uh, tolerant, well, you know, I don't even know that because that's what they were saying on the left until about uh, the, some point in the last decade. I don't hear tolerance much anymore. Uh, now it's more moral authoritarianism. Essentially, we're right, you're wrong. Uh, the tolerance word has gone out of the uh, out of common usage on the left definitely over the last decade. Well, yeah, I mean, this is what we've seen, and, and there's some good survey evidence because in the U.S. you've got the General Social Survey, which has been running since 1972. You can see that an 18-year-old as recently as the early 2000s was more likely to believe in moral relativism. You know, there are different ways of being moral, um, different, different views on what is right and wrong. That was the way young people were, and particularly younger university-educated people were between the 70s and the early 2000s. Now, they are more likely than others, the young and university-educated are more likely than others to say there's absolute right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's been the shift to a much more morally absolutist position amongst mm -hmm. young people, uh, particularly young educated people. And this is out of, this is the environment out of which this very strong kind of um, wokeness, this very bloated, inflated definition of racism and, and sexism and transphobia and homophobia, mm -hmm. all comes out of that very black and white uh, moral absolutism that has come in very strongly with this generation. Um, and so, yeah, toleration is simply no longer an option because, you know, you can't tolerate racism and transphobia because that's, you know, uh, erasing somebody's identity and causing them emotional trauma. Uh, yeah, that that is kind of the, the, the lingo. Um, so it's deeply illiberal. Now, in fairness to mainstream media outlets, a lot of them have recognized this and you've seen editorials in, you know, the New York Times and The Economist and even The Washington Post expressing dismay at this mm -hmm. trend towards progressive illiberalism. Mm -hmm. But I think what what is less well recognized is that in fact, this trend has deeper roots that go back, you know, back to the 1960s. And Chris Rufo makes that point in his, in his book, um, which is, yeah, America's Cultural Revolution. Um, very well that a lot of this very strong progressive intolerance was already there in the 60s student movements 
Weather Underground, the Black Panther movement, all of which have been very, you, you can draw many sort of direct lines of influence between, say, the Black Panthers and BLM. Mm -hmm. uh, so defund the police, uh, teaching critical race theory in schools, uh, emptying the jails, all of these things are, are were core demands of the Black Panther movement. Uh, and similarly, the Weather Underground has relationships to Antifa in, in its ideology. Um, so these things had already existed. They were already in the university system. And then sometime in the 2010s, because of social media, they're able to break out of the campus and enter into the wider mass culture mm -hmm. where they can influence young people uh, and eventually influence institutions like the New York Times, like uh, schools, like mm -hmm. a whole set of institutions. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's it's something else, something frightening. But uh, I think one core question here is why did younger adults go from a comfort with a sort of moral relativism uh, towards a desire for moral absolutism? Because it sort of seems like they're searching for a religion. This is typically what happens when somebody converts to a religion. And I'll just share my point of view. I do believe that wokeism is a secular religion. Uh, I think I believe it was Peter Bogosian who actually did a taxonomy of woke beliefs. And you can very easily see how this is, you know, a creedal uh, religion. I was going to say ideology, really religion with certain faith-based dogmas. Uh, and there is an appeal in that. It's been there throughout humanity. People want to believe in this, that, or the other thing without evidence, uh, ultimately because it pleases their emotions. But obviously there are a thousand and one different reasons uh, for why they're looking to please their emotions and how these emotions came to be. But pushing that aside, uh, looking at these younger adults and the shift they've had from you know the 2000s where there's more relativism to the 2010s where there's absolutism, why do you suppose this change came about? Obviously, it's because people wanted it, but I guess why did people want it? Well, I think the one thing that we have to, I think, understand is that you know on, on certain dimensions, that shift to what I guess you might call a moral absolutism occurs earlier. So the, the GSS uh, survey tracks, you know, they said, are you willing to have a militarist, a communist, an atheist speaking public? There's about six or seven categories of types of speaker. And people are asked whether that such a person should be allowed to speak in public. And you, you get this rising tolerant trend from the sort of 70s all the way up continuing to today across most of those speakers, but there's one exception, which is allowing a racist to speak in public. Mm -hmm. There was greater tolerance for that, increasing tolerance for that starting in the 70s, but it starts to turn around sometime around the 90s or, yeah. or early 2000s. And so, and, and you can see that even in the younger generation. So certain categories had switched from greater toleration to greater intolerance of such a speaker. And one of those was around a racist. So anything around race, again, those sacred categories, race, sex, gender, uh, I think those were exceptions to this moral relativism and already had begun to be politicized. Uh, and you can see that in other ways. For example, the fact that there was affirmative action in the US from the late 1960s around race. So mm -hmm. equality around race had a special dispensation that eventually gets extended to uh, sex eventually gets extended to other categories. You also had hypersensitivity around uh, race as well, going back to the 60s and, and you know, trying to do, talk about immigration in the 1980s and 90s, for example, very difficult. Uh, so you already had a certain sensitivity around these identity categories. 
And all it took was to sort of turn the ratchet from seven or eight out of 10, that is great sensitivity to hyper extreme sensitivity, where, you know, if you say, oh, you know, anyone can make it in America, then that's a microaggression. And so what, I, what I'm saying is I think this, the seeds of this were already laid in the uh, political correctness movement of the 90s, for example, but even going back to the 60s. So it's just, I don't think this comes out of nowhere. I think it builds upon the development of the cultural left post 1960s. It, it's, uh, yeah, I, I think that what we call wokeism, uh, you know, people called other things before that it was social justice warfare. That was not as crystallized as wokeism. Before that, it was uh, liberalism, uh, progressivism, whatever. Uh, but obviously, wokeism is something unique in the ferocity and in the religious devotion it inspires among its adherents. And I think it comes, I mean, I know for a fact it comes out of many different places. It's not just one thing. But two, I think, very important schools of thought probably uh, are the Frankfurt School and postmodernism. People debate as to which one has the biggest influence, <laughs> but I think it's both. I really do, along with many other things, uh, a lot of issues that have to do with, one might say, a modern iteration of late-stage Roman decadence. Uh, so it's it's just, you know, at a certain point, it becomes a chicken or egg matter, but I do think that... Uh, that uh, the Frankfurt School and postmodernism played a, a massive role in forming the mod in forming wokeism. I was gonna say the modern left, but really wokeism. Yeah, I mean, these are the you know, I think there are many different views on this, and a lot of people would agree with you. People like Yashu Meng, people like uh, uh, James Lindsay, for example, and, and I think that there's a lot of truth there. But I, what I tend to, I mean, I'm more persuaded, however, that this is more of an emotional thing. That is, mm -hmm. people became really attached to particular groups, African Americans initially, then maybe it was mm -hmm. women under feminism, and then it was LGBT. Uh, it's that attachment to a particular group, mm -hmm. uh, and then you are hostile to whoever is you are told is harming that particular group, mm -hmm. whether it be white people, men, etc., um, it's as it's, it's as basic as that. You get a plus sign for the cuddly minorities and a minus sign for the nasty oppressive majorities. Now, all of the intellectual stuff, the critical theory, the postmodernism, uh, the critical race, critical legal theory, all of this sort of stuff, I think is largely a post hoc justification. I mean, you could, for example, postmodernism would say, Oh, Confederate monument. Well, Confederate monument means it's all in the eye of the beholder. Some people think it could mean racism, but some people mm -hmm. think it could just be a nice place to take a picture. Absolutely. And therefore, we can't we can't say the Confederate monument is racist. We can't say the Confederate flag is racist because it's it's all um, the, the a work of art is all in the eye of who reads it. Now that is a, a postmodernist way. Mm -hmm. The the death of the author. That is so far from the woke position. Absolutely. The woke position is the opposite yeah, yeah. of that, is to say, no, this means it was meant to be about white supremacy. It's, it means white supremacy. The meaning hasn't changed at all. There's only one meaning. That is the opposite of postmodernism. So again, I'm quite skeptical that some of these mm -hmm. arguments around this, these intellectual developments are as important as just the basic um, attachments you know, weak minorities, good, strong majorities, bad. That's mm -hmm. it. And everything else is window dressing. I, I'm more and more convinced that, that that is really what got us to where we are. Mm -hmm.
Yeah, emotionalism plays a massive role here. Uh, it, uh, it really does. I think the example you brought up of postmodernism with regard to Confederate insignia is uh, very strong indeed. Now, there is an article I want to get to before we wrap things up. Uh, you wrote for the Manhattan Institute titled The Liberal Answer to Counterculture. It was published on November the 6th of this year. Uh, I'll just read a bit of the beginning and you can share your thoughts on it because the subject matter is... Uh, Fascinating. Well, I should say it was published at Law and Liberty, uh, and part of it was rerun at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, but anyway, uh, the beginning goes, cultural socialism and its accompanying religion of woke are geared toward engineering equal outcomes and emotional harm protection for historically disadvantaged race, gender, and sexual identity groups. This ideology has been tearing through Western culture at a breakneck pace. Are we in the midst of an insignificant culture war between pointy-headed obsessives? No, as the classical liberal authors of two new books painfully explain, woke ideology threatens the freedoms we hold dear. More than this, it represents an attack on equal rights, truth-based institutions, and social cohesion that hampers our response to material issues such as health, social mobility, and crime. Uh, and I, uh, I, I, I won't get into any more, but fascinating article. Anything to say about it, Eric? Well, yeah, just to say that, I mean, these are two, two books, one by Yasha Monk, The Identity Trap, and then Lukianov and, and, and Schlott's um, uh, Canceling of the American Mind that I reviewed. But basically, what we're seeing is both liberals, by which I mean classical liberals who defend the Enlightenment tradition, such as free speech, due process, objective truth, they are coming together with conservatives who are concerned about, uh, say, national heritage, heroes, symbols, uh, word usages such as man or woman. And we're getting a coming together of the sort of liberal and the conservative against the cultural socialists. It's a new coalition. It used to be that those liberals were more in bed, if you like, with the left. I think some of the things that are happening, for example, the radical gender ideology, the mm -hmm. some of the anti-Semitism now that, that's coming out of the social justice movement has actually prompted a rethink amongst some liberals. Um, and I think the, the emerging coalition is going to have to be a blend of that sort of liberal group who are concerned about the threats to the Enlightenment and the conservative conservatives who are concerned about the threats to national heritage and cohesion. Um, and, and I just see this ideology as being as helping to mobilize that um, that coalition, right? So I think that was kind of one of the themes is to say, you know, there's a lot of things that liberals and conservatives now have in common. Uh, and they've got a common interest in trying to sort of restore some sanity because a lot of the time these movements are prevent, uh, presented as defending the rights of the vulnerable. But actually what these conflicts really are mainly about is a is a clash of rights you know if you talk about whether uh, transgender women should enter women's sports that's actually a it's not about trans rights no. it's actually about the rights of one group of people transgender women against the rights of another group of people women mm. right so it's not just about rights it's about clashing sets of rights or palestinian students Israeli students. It's about clashing sets of rights. And the way that the social justice left kind of pulls the wool over our eyes is they just say, oh no, this is about Palestinian rights. This is about transgender rights. They never mention the other side of the equation. Or for example, affirmative action. That's just about rights for minorities. It's not about taking rights away from white and Asian students. And, and this is 
part of the game, the scam in a way, and, and part of what's got to happen is we have to move to a position where we're able to have a discussion where we say, no, this isn't just about transgender rights. This is actually about women's rights in, you know, and clashing with transgender rights. And we need to come to some kind of an accommodation. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is the, the sort of layer of euphemism um, that is so common in this movement, we have to be able to cut through it. I, I, I just did a recent survey, for example, where it, a lot of people just aren't aware, uh, if they just look at the surface, if they're just in the news cycle, they're not aware of the depth of issues. Um, so for example, um, you know, if you ask, there's a school teacher who wore size, you know, some massive size prosthetic breasts to teach in a classroom in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, if you ask people whether this uh, transgender woman should be allowed to teach in class, you know, opinion is kind of split. You show a picture of this person with those massive breasts, the opinion just goes off the scale against letting them teach. Uh -huh. But that's an example of what I mean is that until you actually show people in reality what these things mean, opinion, you know, the social justice movement can kind of sail through and, and have its virtuous sheen preserved. And, and part of our job is really to, to unmask that. And uh, wrapping things up now, unfortunately, I mean, the conversation has yeah. gone for another two hours. But uh, what is it that inspired you to take uh, such an interest in wokeism and obviously uh, have an opinion uh, that runs contrary to it, despite being in a profession where, to say the least, it'd be professionally advantageous to take another course? Yeah, well, I mean, I've always, been, you know, I suppose my political interests have been in this whole question of rapid demographic shifting. Uh, challenges to national identity, and, and really one of the real barriers to having an honest conversation about that were politically correct limits on um, debate. And so that kind of got me interested in political correctness, which is really the forerunner of woke. Um, yeah. It's the same principle. It's about um, yeah. mm -hmm. equal outcomes and harm protection for um, historically marginalized groups, and that that's the paramount value and everything else gets pushed aside. And that was really what was happening, I guess, in the debates around immigration and national identity. And so I, that's kind of sort of got me interested in that. My first book, I don't tell, dealt a lot with the cultural left, not the socialist economic left, but the cultural left. That's really something that hasn't been studied very much and needs a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. it, it absolutely does. Uh, it, it's amazing. I mean, I'll just say very quickly, uh, what it means to be on the left definitely has changed quite a lot, well within a century. Uh, in the late 1940s, my paternal grandfather was among the first people to be arrested during the Red Scare for being a, an alleged communist. He was a labor union organizer, and he had very conservative views on basically everything. Uh, and for him to you know to see the left today, he obviously would not recognize it. He was not a communist, by the way, but he still <laughs> went to jail briefly, uh, but that, that's a long story. But the, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that uh, looking at at what it means to be on the left has changed. It has gone from a workers movement, uh, which certainly had benefits and drawbacks, uh, to now being a sort of boutique uh, West LA, uh, silk stocking district of Manhattan uh, sort of deal, which is why you see a fascination with these social issues that do not benefit uh, working people. And just a very quick example before we go is in New York City now, they're about to have a, a London style congestion charge, even 
though, unlike in London, the city is surrounded by toll booths, which are very expensive. So they're going to have a congestion charge plus toll booths, which is going to very much harm working class people have to commute into Manhattan every day to go to work. Uh, but the people who are in Manhattan who are well to do love it because it means there'll be less cars on the road for them as they walk from their apartment near their job to their job or they bike. So this is an outstanding example of how the left has become something that's not attuned to the needs of the working class. It has become something that's attuned to the needs of a sort of uh, well-to-do, well-educated, uh, very self-important cultural so-called elite who congregate in places like Manhattan. And it's no surprise that's why they're having this congestion charge there. Well, that's it, right? It's a sort of aristocracy of taste. It's a way of distinguishing themselves from the plebs. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'd say is I think that that follows mm -hmm. rather than leads woke. So the woke ideas germinate first, mm -hmm. and then all of the sort of status-seeking and self-interested behavior kind of herds in behind that. Um, so that's maybe a slight uh, difference I have with some other people and how this first got going. But yeah, that... that uh, that's sort of, I, you make a very good point. I mean, the, the cultural turn of the left, and this is one of the reasons for the rise of the populist right. A lot of those are ex-labor union left-wing voters, and they've kind of shifted over. Uh, and that's a big trend, that kind of cultural turn of the left and the subsequent decline. I mean, the left-wing parties in Europe have done generally uh, worse than they've done since World War II. I mean, some of the, some of the uh, uh, results for some of these social democratic parties are just... Mm -hmm. Have never been seen before how bad, how poorly they've been doing so. That's a reflection, I think, of what you're talking about. Absolutely, yeah, uh, it is. And you know, you see it. Some people who are the grandchildren of Republican politicians uh, wind up being on the woke left, and then you have others who are the grandchildren of labor organizers, and they're not. And so it's a unique thing it is uh, how the left has changed now the right has changed and the change no doubt will continue uh eric uh last question where can people find your stuff online if they're interested i'm sure uh, they yeah are. if you go to my twitter is it at epkaufm uh or online at uh www.sneps sneps.net um you'll find me there thanks very much you're very welcome, Eric. I hope you enjoyed yourself, and I very much uh, hope we can speak again. There's a lot to discuss. Fantastic. Thanks a lot. Okay. Absolutely. Bye -bye. Take it easy. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. And thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the chat as much as Eric and I did. Stay safe, be well, and cheers. <laughs>